Hello, this is Contractor Coffee Club podcast presented by EGIA, and I'm your host, Mark Madison. This podcast is hosted on the EGIA.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, along with an archive of all previous episodes, a submission form for our listener Q&A, and the link to take the latest EGI snapshot survey. In today's episode, I'll be bringing a segment, the first of three, from my newest ebook, Sparking Your Success. It's really a, a, an inspiring little book to help you go from here to there. But Lucas, before we get started, did we have a question from the mailbag or do we have uh, something from the survey? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Thanks for mentioning that. I actually want to get your take on this. So uh, one of the core EGIA member benefits is the snapshot survey program. Um, every month we survey our member contractors on a specific topic that's important to the industry to get an idea of what's working and what's not among the home services community, kind of a real-time best practices research. And then at the end of the month, we compile the survey questions and responses into an easily digestible summary report to give contractors actionable insights that they can implement in their businesses immediately, um, or at least start making some, some changes, corrections if necessary. Last month, we surveyed people on service management operations. And so I just wanted to share one of the questions uh, that I thought was kind of key. And I know, Mark, with how much you deal with training, I thought you might be interested in it. So we asked sure. um, our member contractors, does your company train and develop all new employees regardless of previous experience. And we had 88% said yes, absolutely. 12% said they would forego training if the new hire had enough industry experience. Mark, as I said, you're, you, you, you're all about training. What are your thoughts on this, uh, this particular question? Uh, this is something we hear about a lot from contractors, actually. Can you, can you not, you know, can you forego training if it seems like they're already up to speed? Yeah, so there's a couple of insights. First, I, I want to tell you a story. So a number of years ago, I was working with the vice president of service for a very large uh, contractor. And I just finished some training with him and he was delighted with it. And the, the CEO of the construction side of the business, it was a big company, $150 million company. And my you know, my guy says to the CEO, you know, you should consider bringing Mark in and doing some training. So it had a profound and positive impact, not on not just on morale and productivity, but on the bottom line. And the CEO said, yeah, the only problem with that is if I, you know, if I spend the money and I train these guys and they leave. And my guy said, well, there's only one thing worse. And he said, what's that? He said, if I don't train them and they stay. Okay. That is worse. I, wanted, I wanted to hug them. You know, it was such a great insight. And I was, you know, it was totally impromptu, you know, just. Uh, and and that's a great insight. I've I've worked with about seven contractors of the year. Okay, I mean these are the best and the brightest. And to the man, the companies that elevate themselves to that lofty status all commit to training and education, and it's a huge part of what they do. And they wouldn't dream of not doing it. So if you want to be employer of choice in your region, if you want to be the very best contractor where you are, it starts with training and education. Ben Franklin said, take a coin out of your purse and put it in your head. It'll come flowing out of your head and overflow your purse. So the, the ROI on training, it isn't if you're going to get it. It's just how much. Well, Mark, let me, uh, let me ask you this. What, what sure, if, go ahead. In terms of the, the – um, so some of the people would say, you know, well, this guy already has 10 years experience at a different company. Uh, do I really need to train him for my company? Uh, do you see enough kind of distinction between two companies to want to retrain somebody who already has experience? 
Absolutely, because it's a cultural issue. Wherever he came from isn't where he is. And insinuating somebody into your company culture, and culture is simply habits and attitudes, okay? It's what it's what's talked about and it's what's rewarded in companies. So to assimilate somebody into a culture, especially if the guy is a, a rock star, you know, is, is just a great hire. One of the one of the challenges I hear is, you know, the quote, the prima donna, the superstar technician gets hired and he doesn't fit into the culture because he's he's kind of a lone ranger. Right. No tanto. So the most successful companies grow their own technicians and gr- grow them with, you know, to fit into the framework of their culture. You just can't afford not to. You know, think of it this way. If I give a guy a fish, I feed him once. If I teach him how to fish, I feed him for a lifetime. And to me, that's what training is about. It's about teaching somebody how to fish. Yeah, the very best companies train everybody all the time. I just got a phone call from one of the most high-profile residential service contractors in America, and they just asked me to do some more training for me. It's been a couple of years since I've been out there. And they have uh, 350 contract, uh, 350 employees now. They had, uh, I think, about 150 when I trained them initially. And he said, yeah, we, you know, we've got 200 people that never heard your message, and we want exactly what I just said. You want to insinuate them and assimilate them into our culture. To me, it's a no-brainer. It's yeah. a great question. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's one of those things, like I said, we, we hear this, this question a lot and um, you know, you can understand why some people might think, well, they're, they're plenty experienced. And that's kind of where that 12% that said they'll, they'll forgo training on where that might come in. But like you said, it's just, you're training on culture. It's a completely different fit. And and in the fishing analogy, you know, well, what if they show up with worms to fly fish because they were taught how to fish with worms? It's like, yeah, they learned something, but it might not be the way you do things here. Not to get too on the nose with your fishing analogies, but yeah, or a shotgun. You know, you're not going to get a lot of fish with a shotgun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, are there any questions from the mailbag before we get started? Oh uh, no, we're going to save those for for the next one. Oh, okay, good. So should I just jump right in here? Jump right into it. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know what? I'll, I'll mention really quick. That was that was one of the sample questions from from the most recent snapshot survey summary report, and it's actually not the same sample question that's up on the EGIA blog right now. So if you go to egia.org/blog, you can see another sample piece: service management operations snapshot survey summary report. And again, if somebody wants, somebody who's listening to this wants you know full access to that, mm-hmm. they can they can join as a member. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. egia.org/slash/join to join um, the snapshot survey is something we do every month. It's available to all members. We, we survey all our member contractors on a specific topic that's vital to contractors. At the end of the month, we compile that. I actually compile that into a summary report that's kind of actionable, digestible stuff you can use right now. Uh, and then that's delivered to all members every month. So you're getting new industry research as part of your membership every month. And one thing I can tell you is that if you ever looked around, industry research generally is wildly exorbitantly expensive so this is i think it's one of the best member benefits we have honestly not just because i run it of course well on a sort of salespeople have skinny kids right so you can't be shy about talking about what you do. <laughs> absolutely speaking of that should they decide to join egia they'll get a copy of this book that i'll be operating from today it's a fantastic little book it's got gosh let's see how many it's got about uh, 75 pages or so so mark is this your first book no no, no. this is uh this is my newest ebook called Sparking Your Success. And I sat down, oh gosh, about two months ago. And I asked myself, what, what are the foundational pieces? If somebody wanted to build an extraordinary life and commit themselves to personal development, what are the elements that are causal to that? And so I sat down and I mind mapped, you know, I've been, I've been studying what I affectionately call anthropomaximology. It's the study of the upper limits of human potential. And I determined that there were 13 elements, 13 chapters, if you will, 
so it's potential, awareness, comfort zones, self-talk, habits, attitude, goals, the hour of power, the difference between a job, a career, and a calling, wins, consistency, other-centered philosophy, and helping others. So what I thought I'd do today is just go through the first the first couple, three chapters and kind of hit the high points. And again, should anybody be interested in getting a copy of this, all they have to do is contact EGIA. Albert Schweitzer said, at times our own light goes out and is rekindled by a spark from another person. Each of us has cause to think with deep gratitude of those who have lighted the flame within us. And the guy that lit the flame within me was a guy named Bob Moad. And Bob was a former state high school basketball coach who'd won a state championship. And he was doing seminars and he came to our high school to speak. But I'd actually met Bob a couple of summers before that at, at basketball camp. And he was this piano playing, fast talking, joke telling coach. And I'd never met anybody like him. Looked a little bit like Pat Riley, had the hair combed back, you know, thick head of hair. And, and this guy had won a state championship, so I paid attention. But he came to our high school to speak my sophomore year. And it literally, it, it lit a spark inside me. And I went to the coach afterwards and I said, is there more? And he said, absolutely. And uh, he handed me a brochure. It said, Action for Excellence, $45, Super Bowl weekend, right? So two days at Seattle University. And this was 1971. So I, I went home that night and I convinced my mother to, to give me the $45 and drive me down and drop me off for this, this two-day seminar. And I literally, you know, was just immersed in this thing. I took 50 pages of notes. And, uh, and from the things that I learned from Bob, again, many of the things I talk about in this, in this ebook. Uh, I went from scrub to star on the basketball team. I went from a one eight to a three eight with my grades, all in the same year. And it and I never looked back. I mean, it literally it, it lit something inside me. So you're the only one that really understands what sparks your own success. For some of us, getting cut from a sports team will do it. That's what happened to me. Others, it's a well-meaning friend or relative or coach that tells us we can or shouldn't do something we really want to do. What motivated you as a teenager will all likelihood motivate you as an adult. It's a matter of getting in touch with your inner locus of control, your inner drive, your want to versus have to. For whatever reason, be it nature or nurture, if you tell a Madison that we can't do something that we really want to do, it sparks something within us to prove you wrong. My father had it. I have it. My boys have it. How about you? What sparks your success? What gets your juices going? In this ebook, I attempt to give you tools for change. The information's come from about 59 years of experience, trial and error, success, and temporary setback you find a simple series of steps to unlock your potential. A proven method of assisting you in realizing your own personal and professional greatness. If you read it all the way through, even the slowest reader, it'll take about an hour or two to finish. It'll change your life and you'll never be the same. Maybe the best way to get the, to get the most out of this book, and this is any book, and this comes from me reading two books a week for 30 years. I read it all the way through the first time like a novel, just to understand the overview. That's the first thing I do with, with any book that I think is important enough to study more than once. The second reading, take one chapter at a time with a pen in hand and your journal. Number three, invest 20 minutes a day reading each chapter, slowly writing down answers to the questions. And when an aha happen, happens, captured on paper, an aha is simply something that lights your fire, that sparks that success. You'll know it when, when they hit. And then take some kind of action. Faith without works is dead. And number five, share it with somebody that you love. It's called dual plane learning. You'll insinuate the information to your subconscious to make it your own. And then finally, uh, revisit it again in a few months. And when something does happen that's good and feeds your soul, write it down, capture it. So 
It's warm by the fire. Let's get started. Chapter one, potential. Nicholas Tesla, the inventor and pioneer, said the spread of civilization may be likened to a fire. First, a feeble spark, next a flickering flame, and then a mighty blaze, ever increasing in speed and power. So just what exactly are you capable of? Are you manifesting all that's in you? If we're honest with ourselves, the answer for most of us is no. Potential is like an iceberg. 90% of it is unseen. The world seems only 10% or less. Margaret Mead once said, most human beings operate on less than 5% of their potential. So let's see if we can push your iceberg a little higher above the waterline for all to see. You maybe never heard of Grandma Moses. She was born in 1860, and she spent decades living in the rural agricultural life that she would later feature in her paintings. And she began devoting herself to art when she was in her 70s. In 1938, an art collector discovered her work and completely self-taught, Moses soon became famous for her images of country life. She died in 1961 at the age of 101. In 1905, Moses returned to New York State with her family. She and her husband operated a small farm in Eagle Bridge, New York. Moses later began dabbling in painting, creating her first work on, an on, on a fireboard in her home in 1918. She occasionally painted after that, but didn't devote herself much to her craft until much later. And then in 1927, with the death of her husband, she sought ways to keep herself busy in her grief. By the mid-1930s, and then in her 70s, devoted most of her time to painting. And her first big break came in 1938. She had some of her works hanging in the local store, and an art collector named, named Louis Caldor saw them and bought them all. The following year, Moses had some of her paintings shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in an exhibition of unknown artists. She went on to have her first one-woman show in New York, as well as her picturesque works displayed at Gimbel's, a famous New York department store, the following year. To celebrate her 100th birthday, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller declared September 7th, 1960 as Grandma Moses Day. He repeated the honor the following year to mark the art artist turning 101. And sadly, on December 13th, 1961, she passed away. During her career, she created something like 1,500 works of art. Her paintings still remain popular today and provide a glimpse into America's pastoral past. According to an Associated Press report, President John F. Kennedy remembered Moses as a beloved figure in American life. It's never too late to start. Grandma Moses proved that. So did Ray Kroc at age 53 when he first approached the McDonald's brother in San Bernardino, California, about franchising their system of making hamburgers. No one told Colonel Sanders he couldn't sell his recipe for making chicken at age 65. So here's my first question to you. What area of your life would you like to improve? And why is that important to you? When that question was asked of me at 14, at that seminar conducted by Bob Moat, I wrote down, I wanted to be a good rebounder. And my thinking at the time was, if I'm the best rebounder on my team, I get the most playing time. Well, that turned out to be true. So I wrote on a little three by five card when it came time to set goals, I'm a good rebounder. And Bob came by and he looked at that and he said, hmm, does that do anything for you? And I said, uh, well, not really. He said, why don't we spice it up a little? So he grabbed another card and he wrote, I dominate the backboards and I rip the ball off the glass. And I went, wow, it was a horse of a different wheelbase. So he said, why don't you affirm that four or five times a day? And at night, just before you go to bed, I want you to close your eyes and imagine blocking your man out and jumping high and ripping the ball off the glass and do that every night for 30 nights and then see if anything positive happens. And if anything good happens, doing it for another 30. 
So I did it every night. And on the 21st day of this simple little ritual, I'd had a 25-point outburst on the sophomore team in three quarters. So they kept me out the fourth quarter, and they moved me up to JV. And we were playing an undefeated JV team that had seven Division I football players on that team. That following year, they won the state championship. And I had nine rebounds in the fourth quarter, including the winning tip-in. And I'll never forget, the coach's name was, was Earl, Earl Wayman. And he pulled me in the office after the game, and he said, let me ask you something. Do you realize how many rebounds you had? I said, no. I, he said, you had nine in the fourth quarter. He said, nobody's ever had nine rebounds in one quarter before. He said, in fact, Mark, at one point, you jumped so high, you ripped the ball off the glass. And I suddenly saw Rod Sterling in the corner of the locker room smoking a cigarette in black and white saying, you're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and of sound, but of mind. I mean, I freaked out. I mean, nobody, nobody had seen that goal except me. You see, that's what it took. It took somebody helping me see what was possible from a potential standpoint. And the following year, I started as a 15-year-old junior on the varsity, and uh, and I just I just went on from there. I went on to get a college scholarship, and I applied the same ideas and principles to my grades with with the same effect. Mark, can I can I ask you something on that point? Um, Absolutely. In terms of of the goal building that you're talking about, you know, dominating the glass, um, ripping down the ball. How does that apply to, say, everybody, somebody not in basketball? So 90, 95% of our listeners, obviously, are going to be home services contractors. What would a sure. goal, um, how would you put, like, what would, what would a goal for a home services contractor look like in, in kind of that style, dominating, ripping it off the glass? Um, well, let's take a couple consultant. Okay. He, he might say, you know, what would really help my business is for me to get endless referrals. So what if he sat down and grabbed a card and wrote, and wrote down on the card, I generate endless from referrals from delighted clients, right? Yeah. I ask for two names after every sale. And you write that, you write that on a card. You look at the card four or five times a day for 30 days and abracadabra, which by the way, is an Armenian phrase. It means I say it and I create it, right? That's perfect. So magicians, you know, use that, but it is magic, right? Uh, let's take a technician. I generate, I generate um, solid leads from the field. Right. Or uh, I go the extra mile for my customer or I'm a great listener and my customers appreciate, you know, my compassion and understanding. Yes. Yeah, so what, I'm, what I'm hearing then is, is you want it to be you're describing habits and describing habits that are very um, quantifiable, something that you can say either a hard yes or a hard no. I did or didn't do that on, on this sales call or on, you know, on this install. Yeah. And uh, well, and I talked about this before, but. What if you had a 75% close rate? And right now your close rate's 50%, right? So what if you wrote down, I'm so proud and happy to enjoy a 75% close ratio? Because what we're really talking about, and again, what Bob taught me all those years ago was uh, all, all we're talking about is a set point on a thermostat. That's all your, that's all your self-image is. You, have, you see yourself in a certain way. You see, you see yourself in terms of your grade point average when you were a kid or your scoring average as a player. And then later in life, you know, and you know, we measure everything, right? Or at least you should be measuring everything. I mean, I, I have a little, I have about 85% close ratio, which means that if I propose 10, I'm going to close 8.5. Okay. That's, that's my comfort zone. That's my set point, if you will. Okay. So what we're talking about here is, is changing uh, uh, your set point, changing your self image. And, 
And honestly, it happens because of repetition, emotion, and time. In my seminars, I, you know, I ask people to uh, fold their arms, and then I ask them to fold their arms the other way, right? And it's a habit. You know, first we form habits, then they form us. But virtually everything that we believe about ourselves happened because of repetition, emotion, and time. If, if uh, good or bad, positive or negative, right? So if you were told your whole life that you're nothing but trouble, my nickname when I was a kid was Dennis the Menace. And that wasn't a positive nickname. It was given to me by uh, one of my mother's friends and people thought it was funny. So that every time she saw me, she called me Dennis the Menace, but it wasn't a term of endearment. I found out later, you know, this woman had some serious issues, <laughs> but, but I decided to use that same exact principle when I started coaching and I started giving my kids positive nicknames. I ran into a young man who owns two restaurants here in Seattle. He's a, he's a kid that I coached when he was 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. And I nicknamed him Alonzo because at that time, Alonzo Morning was the star from Georgetown, went on to play in the NBA for years. And I called him Zoe as a nickname. And based on the strength of me calling Andrew Leckie Alonzo, he started blocking shots like nobody's business. He blocked 13 shots in one game in high school. You see, what I really did was I gave him a good name, right? I praised him and I gave him a positive nickname and he lived up to the nickname. And every time I'd see him, I'd say, Zoe, that's it, man. You're on your way. You're doing it. I'm so proud of you. And I'm convinced that the success he's having uh, with his restaurants came from the success he had with basketball. And I'm proud to report that I was an integral part of that early success because I gave him a good name to live up to, positive or negative. Earl Nightingale said in the, in the strangest secret in the world, he said, if you, you can plant corn and you can plant nightshade and the soil doesn't care. It's neutral. It'll grow either in equal abundance, but one's a deadly poison. The other one's nutritious. So our mind's the same way. And so what we're talking about here is a set point. It's a thermostat setting. That's really all it is. And so once you change the thermostat setting, everything changes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The second chapter is about awareness. Steve Kerr, the current uh, championship NBA coach of the Golden State Warriors said, I think it's imperative to follow your heart and choose a profession you're passionate about. If you haven't found that spark yet, if you're not sure what to do with your lives, be persistent until you do. How good are you at your present job? What percentage of effectiveness are you operating at currently? In other words, how much better could you be? I'm constantly amazed at how stupid I was two years ago and the cycle keeps repeating. When we have a shift in awareness, everything changes. I was a better parent when our second son came along. Why? Experience. As parents, we do the best job we can until that awareness changes. So what are the factors that affect our awareness? The first step to change is awareness. The second step is acceptance. My mentor, Jack Canfield, the guy who wrote all the chicken soup books, once said, by taking the time to stop and appreciate who you are, and what you've achieved and perhaps learned through mistakes, stumbles and losses, you actually can enhance everything about you. Self-acknowledgement and appreciation are what give you the insights and awareness to move forward toward higher goals and accomplishments. Let's not look back in anger nor forward in fear, but around in awareness. A king and his troops were going through a forest. The king saw an old man cutting trees, taking pity on him. He asked the minister to give the old man an acre of sandalwood trees. The minister took care of that instantly. A couple of years later, the king and his troops were again passing through the forest. And in fact, were passing by the area where 
there once stood sandalwood trees that were given to the old man. The king noticed that most of the trees were gone. And in one corner, the old man was there. He was burning a couple of sandalwood trees. Upon talking to him, the minister found out that he was burning those trees to collect coal because that's what he does. He sells coal and makes money. The simple story about awareness. Sometimes we have riches right in front of our eyes. And if we can't see them as such, they're not riches to us. So the question is this, which sandalwood trees are you burning in your life because you want to sell coal? In 1993, when my boys were seven and four years old, I began a nightly ritual. After I'd read to them and we'd say our prayers, I asked them two simple questions every night. What was the most fun you had today? And what are you looking forward to tomorrow? And I think the mistake a lot of young parents make is they ask their kids, you know, what did you learn today, Joey? And you know what? Joey's four years old. He doesn't care about learning. What Joey cares about is fun. So I tapped into a, a question that I knew would, would catch their attention. So after a year of the simple process, uh, I really started to learn what was important to my boys. And Christmas night, 1994, I asked Evan, who was five years old, what are you looking forward to tomorrow? And he paused for a moment and he said, playing with the box, the refrigerator came in. A little surprised, I said, uh, what about the Nintendo? That was like 150 bucks. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to play with that, too. But that box, he goes, I'm going to put my sleeping bag in there and spend the night. A little shocked, I said, like a homeless guy? He said, whatever. And then he said, well, you want to put your sleeping bag in there, too, Dad? So there I was, sleeping in a box. The refrigerator came in with my son in a van down by the river, right? So uh, <laughs> did you return all the toys then, or? Uh, no, but, you know, it, what it taught me, Lucas, is I, I simply thought I knew what was important to my kids. Yeah. And the reality is I didn't. That was a shift in awareness for me. Until we ask the right questions, our awareness remains the same. So awareness comes from a simple three-step process. Bad judgment, experience, good judgment. So capturing the lessons in a journal is a great way to learn the lessons so we can make new mistakes. See, that's what I'm about today. New mistakes, not the same old ones. When I work with comfort consultants, I, and I teach salespeople to ask two simple questions after every single call. What went well on that call? And what can you improve or do better next time? And it's interesting because that question, you know, I thought coaching basketball was something I did for my kids. And then I found out later that that, that was ended up being something that they did for me. And what I mean by that is this. I would ask Colin after every game, I was his AAU coach in sixth and seventh and eighth grade. And on the way home from the game, and I did this as Evan as well. I would ask two questions, you know, what did you do well today in the game? And what one thing could you improve? And unbeknownst to me, Colin kept asking himself that question uh, in high school and then in college. And then when he played overseas and I asked him one day by his senior year, he was the best defensive player in the conference. And I asked him, I said, how, how do you suppose that happened, Colin? And he said, well, Dad, it's kind of your fault. I said, what do you mean? He said, you used to ask me two questions after every game. What did I do well? What could I improve? He said, I kept doing that on my own all through high school and college and then overseas. And he said, I think, I think it was one of the things that helped make me, you know, the best basketball player I could be. And the light went on. You know, I started asking salespeople, what went well on that call? And what could you improve? So how about you? Are you capturing the lessons along the way? What can you do to shift your awareness? I'm convinced that we'll be the same person in five years, except for two things, books and people, people and books. My, men, my late mentor, Charlie Jones, taught me that. Stephen Covey said every human has four endowments, self-awareness, conscience, independent will, and creative imagination. 
These give us the ultimate human freedom, the power to choose, to respond, to change. I believe in self-efficacy. I believe in each of our abilities to change. Uh, and I know that because of, from personal experience. In 1979, I was homeless, carless, jobless, and penniless. And that's not the case anymore. We all have a choice. We, we can, I think Ray Kroc said it best. We're either green and growing or we're ripe and rotting. Which one are you? Lucas, any thoughts? Yeah, I was actually curious. So what, what are some of the, because I'm wondering sort of big picture versus small picture um, when you're talking to, say, uh, you know, a comfort advisor about, you know, what went well, what didn't. And obviously some of that is for their own benefit to ask themselves that question. But it's like how, how big of like, what are you, what, what would you hear from some of them about what, what's something that they did well on that one or something they did wrong on that one? Just to kind of give people an idea of what sorts of things, how big or how small is, is relevant. Well, it's interesting because I've done, you know, hundreds of ride alongs and most salespeople don't think in terms of dual plane learning. They don't, they don't sit down and analyze what they're saying while they're saying it. Right. And, and frankly, between you and I, most comfort consultants don't do a very good job of listening. They, they don't ask enough of the right questions in the right order and they don't listen. And uh, I can't tell you how many, how many times I've, you know, about halfway through, I would say, do you mind if I ask a question? Or I would ask a follow-up question because they, they missed something. And then afterwards, I, I sit with them in their car and I say, all right, let's, let's just talk about what just happened. Did you happen to notice that about halfway through our time together, she asked you a question, you completely missed the relevance of the question. And it's because they're not listening. They're not really listening. They're not asking the question. I wonder why she asked that. Yeah. Or I wonder why he asked that, posed that question. And sometimes I would literally say, there's a reason you asked that question. Do you mind if I ask what it is? And now all of a sudden they tell you why they asked the question. And that simple notion that we're so caught up, I think, most salespeople are so caught up in telling the customer about features and benefits and how long the company's been in business and how proud they are of their products and their services that they forget that it's about the customer. It's about their issues. It's about their comfort concerns. It's about what has them up at night. And the only way to find out those things is to ask the right questions and listen. And frankly, most, most men, I say that with the emphasis of men underlined in bold and font, don't listen well. And we need to do a better job of, of doing that. And, and that's what the two questions uncover and discover, I think. Yeah. And, and so that's sort of the difference between, I guess, hearing or thinking, going into a house, thinking this person called um, because they want a new air conditioner when what they called for is, is comfort, right? They didn't, they, they don't necessarily care if it's a new air conditioner. They don't know what they need per se. They just know they're not comfortable and, and they want their experience needs to be enhanced. However, that may be. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And then, and then moreover, everybody wants to tell their story. My German teacher in high school, Susan Hall, taught me that. She said, everybody has a story, Mark. Your job is to find out what that story is. So before you, you jump into you know, features and benefits and cost and choices, you need to ask questions like, so how long have you lived in this neighborhood? And why have you been here so long? What's great about this neighborhood? And tell me about your family. How many kids do you have? And just let them talk. The first 15 or 20 minutes is about building rapport and understanding 
their position and their concerns and their insights and their observations. And we need to let them do that first, I think. And that's no less true with technicians. You know, when I was a tech, I, I would say, so how long have you guys been in this building, right? And what, what's, the, what's the biggest challenge of this, in this building? And for whatever reason, I think it was because uh, in 1982, I read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And that book really changed the way I saw the world. That was kind of my human relations Bible. And I operated from, you know, from those principles. And, and I was probably a C-plus technician on my best day, but I was an, I've always been an A-plus people guy. And I'm convinced it's because of, you know, initially because of that book. But once I started trying out some of the strategies that Carnegie talked about in that book, I, I realized that, you know, it wasn't about me. It was about the customer. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, that's it, a nice segue into the next chapter is, is it's all about comfort zones. I mean, again, fold your arms the other way. For those who are listening, if you're driving in your car, don't do this. But uh, if you're not driving or pull over, right, put it in park and fold your arms and then look at which arms on top. And then fold them the other way and then ask yourself, how does that feel? Everything I want is just outside of my comfort zone. Brian Tracy said, move out of your comfort zone. You can only grow if you're willing to feel awkward and uncomfortable when you try something new. And that's what happens when you fold your arms the other way. And I really believe that everything I want is just outside my comfort zone. I have a new book coming out, Freedom from Fat, and it's a book about wellness and nutrition. And I'm going to do some things from a marketing standpoint I've never done before. And I'm excited about trying new things because what got me here won't take me there. Right. So if I want to take my sales to the next level, I'm going to have to do some things I haven't done before. So again, back to the thermostat setting, we have a set point that controls our performance, our behavior. For example, if your goal is to earn $80,000 a year in sales and you hit your goal in October, it's amazing how much creative effort goes into activities and behaviors that avoid making any new calls for the rest of the year. If you're a golfer who enjoys a 10 handicap and you shoot a 32 on the front nine, and your friend makes a mistake at telling you your score, you'll magically slice in the woods, drop one or two in the water, put your next shot in the sand for a bogey or a double bogey. And it's amazing when you add up the second nine, it's a 50. 50 plus 32 is 82. Look at that. Amazing, isn't it? We all have these comfort zones that set and determine our behavior. So what if you've been doing things wrong your whole life? What if you bought the wrong plan? I hear people say all the time, I'll try. And whenever I hear somebody use the word try, I just tell them that means you intend to fail and you're just letting everybody else know in advance. I'm excited about the new Star Wars movie coming out, Lucas, because uh, my son, my oldest son and I go opening day. We go to the first show early in the morning. He gets a couple of breakfast burritos and that's kind of a ritual. Mark, I was so hoping you were going to bring There Is No Try back to Star Wars. I'm so excited about right? happening right now. Well, so the Empire Strikes Back, Luke's uh, in the swamp with Yoda, right? And Yoda says, uh, you know, lift the swamp with your mind. He said, all right, I'll give it a try. And it just, Yoda says, no, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Yes, fail you will. I mean, it's a loose paraphrase of what he says, but. No, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. So it, try is one of those words that's like the emergency brake on your car. If you've got a Porsche boxer and you want to go 180 miles an hour, but the emergency brakes on, you may be only going to go 120. Okay. And that's what the word try is. It's a, it's an emergency break for your performance. That Super Bowl weekend uh, with Bob Moad, it was 1971. I was 14 years old. The Miami Dolphins were trying to beat the Dallas Cowboys. I had the privilege of sharing the stage with Larry Zonka a few years ago. 
And at dinner, I asked him about uh, a Sports Illustrated article. And he said, you know, it was interesting. We worked all year long to get to the Super Bowl. And he, he emphasized the word get. His teammates used the same words in the interview, get. Words trigger pictures and bring about emotion. And guess what? They were crushed by the Cowboys 24 to 3 because the Cowboys expected to win it. So the next season, the Dolphins went 17 and 0 and won it all. And Zonka said, he said, we changed the way we talked about what we were doing. The principle is called goal setting through and not to. I watched the Seahawks do the same thing in 2005. They goal set to get to the Super Bowl. And when they lost to Pittsburgh, uh, I was the only person that wasn't surprised. That day, I walked around Seattle with my Steelers uh, polo shirt on that a client had given me. And I took a lot of grief for that, but I was predicting that they would lose based on the words they were using in the paper. So the words we use matter. And one of the things we need to do is take a look, take a hard look at that. So what can you do to step out of your comfort zone? What new hobbies or skills can you develop that will force you out of your comfort zone? When I was a technician, I took every single technical training class that came down the pike. I mean, everyone. I started keeping a journal in 1982. I had wiring diagrams and piping diagrams in my early journals. That's not something most people do. If you're in sales, the best thing you could do is get a journal and write down what went well and what could you improve after every single call. If you're the leader of the company, a great idea is to capture salient points about your employees in your journal. I remember the story about a, I read this in Inc. Magazine years ago. This gentleman was, uh, there were three huge plants on the East Coast and they were manufacturing plants. But the most successful and the most profitable plant was run by a guy named Joe. And Joe had a box, he had 500 employees and he had a box of three by five cards under his desk. And every day he would take five cards out of the box from the front with uh, someone's name on each card, an employee, and he would go find that person. And before he would, you know, go talk to that person, he would look at the cards because he had notes, the wife's name, how many children, and so on, personal information. So he'd scan the card, put it in his pocket, and he'd go find the guy and say, hey, how's your daughter doing? Is she still playing soccer? And he would ask personal questions about their personal life. And they were always blown away by, quote, his memory and how much he cared. And he said when he would find any new information, when he got done talking to him, he'd go around the corner and he'd update the card and then he'd put it in the back and he'd find the next person. 20 years later, when he retired, they threw a party for him. All 500 employees showed up and most of the people brought their wives. And they asked him why, because the other two plants weren't doing as well as he was from a profit standpoint. And they asked him why he was so popular, why his plant was so successful. And not just financially, but in terms of uh, turnover and morale and productivity, right? And he said, my shoebox. They said, your shoebox? He said, yeah, my shoebox are three by five cards. He said, that's my secret. Zig Ziglar said it best. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So what can you do to step out of your comfort zone? What new hobbies or skills can you develop that will force you out of your comfort zone and take you to another level? Robin Sharma, the author and speaker, said, as you move outside your comfort zone, what was once the unknown and frightening becomes your new normal. So that's probably enough for today. I'm thinking, Lucas. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, we I actually, to- but we we are sort of on the topic of I, I do I did have one uh, listener question hanging out, and you just mentioned morale, so I feel like this is a perfect time to to maybe pitch it at you for for a couple of minutes if you don't mind. Sure, um, fire away. We had one listener question out of out of Minnesota. And it was just sort of uh, a, kind of a, a big picture question, I guess, but maybe you have some smaller uh, tactics or, or big picture strategy, but um, ideas for how to build morale within the company. Absolutely. Um, this time of year, there's a lot of holiday parties. I get asked to speak at those. I just got a request yesterday. It's kind of fun. W- one of the things that there's a, there's, there's something called a white elephant. And I, I don't know where that name come from, what the genesis of that statement is, but the holiday parties are a wonderful time to acknowledge people. And I think, uh, you know, just it's for a, ch- a chance for uh, for employers to say thank you. Uh, one of my clients, a contractor in Pennsylvania, uh, just called uh, two days ago and ordered uh, 30 books and 30 CDs. And he's giving those out. I was just out there a few months ago. He's giving those out as a thank you. So gifts are one way. Right? Acknowledgement is another. The deepest craving in the human condition is the need to be appreciated, respected, and understood. Everybody wants that. But the white elephant idea, and this was one of those things that I think uh, it'll it'll change your it'll change up your holiday party focus and strategy. So I, I watched this contractor do this three years in a row, and I had the privilege of attending the parties all three years. And and it was what they did was they got they ended up buying about twenty gifts or so. This was in a this was a company that had about thirty five employees, right? So not everybody got a gift. But there were 20 gifts and there were 20 questions. And if you answered the question correctly, you got you got to choose a gift. But the twist was uh, the next person who got the gift could keep the gift that they chose or they could take your gift. And they had everything from a, a toilet brush to Nintendo and everything in between. Right. So there were expensive gifts like Xbox and right. And then there were just like gag gifts. Right. And it was really fun to watch people be attached to a gift that they'd quote one only to have somebody take it. And it was one of those things that, you know, at first I thought, wow, this is going to be filled with conflict and people are going to be, you know, there'll be a gnashing of teeth and and sackcloth and ashes, but it didn't turn out that way. It was, it, it made for a really fun time. The other kind of best practice that I found is that in addition to holiday parties, 4th of July, uh, the, vice presidents of the of this one particular company would hold barbecues and they would do all the cooking and they would do all the cleanup and they were literally servant leaders so they would find a way to get people together on a regular basis usually four times a year but for sure at christmas and july 4th and just have a have a party volleyball you know face painting for the kids and and the last one, the last idea is a really simple one. I work with a contractor in Ohio, and this guy had a long line of people waiting to come to work for him. And I, I, I'd never seen anybody more beloved than this guy. And so one day I was just watching him closely, and he just hired a parts driver. And the parts driver, he he said, how was your weekend? It was a Monday morning. I said, how was your weekend? And he said, oh, you know, I... I tried to move some of my stuff, but I, you know, I still got a lot of stuff to do. I just got, I moved into a new apartment. He said, well, I'll tell you what, when you go home tonight, why don't you take the flatbed with you and you can get it all done in one move. Here's the keys. He said, don't worry about the, the gas. So that's on me. And I watched this kid just slide up, right? It's like he'd been given the keys of the kingdom or something. I mean, he was just so happy. And I turned to him and I said, do you do that all the time? He said, oh yeah. He said, this is like family to me. 
And I think that's the key, you know, is unless you're a dysfunctional family, you know, uh, you, it's, it's about treating people with respect and dignity and caring more than others think is wise. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of those things that I've always thought this about any company, but certainly it goes for, you know, home services companies, contractors as well. But being able to turn, make people feel more like stakeholders than employees, right? And, right. and, that's, the, and that's exactly what you're describing, you know, the, the, the bosses who will serve the, the employees at the 4th of July barbecue or, you know, giving somebody the keys saying, don't worry about it, I trust you is a great way to make them feel. And then they're going to be more invested in the company, right? Then they're not just showing up for a paycheck and trying to like get through the day. They're showing up excited to work with people that they feel like are an extended family. Exactly. My son works at Amazon, that same son I told you about, Colin. And he, he said when he was first there, the first six months he was there, he was uh, appointed a project leadership position and he led this project. He was a brand new employee. And he said, what, what they, they have 14 points that they, and that everybody, you know, memorizes and kind of lives and practices. But he said, the fact that they got me involved in something and, and gave me a project and trusted me that early on in my employment, he said, all it did was foster a, a measure of loyalty that I've just never had at another company. So, uh, you know, and millennials more than baby boomers want to be a part of something. They want to, they want to be engaged. They want to have a say in, in how their work goes. Yeah, and on that actually on that Amazon example, Mark, that's a that's a great point. Um, I actually I know somebody who works at Amazon and she's not even 30 years old. And I asked her once if she has ever met Jeff Bezos. And she said, Oh yeah, I'm in meetings with him every couple of weeks at least. This Jeff Bezos is one of the what the second richest man in the world. And and she's not, you know, she's not a vice president or anything, but it's like people right. In all walks of life, there are seeing the guy who's in charge of everything, and how is that not going to make you buy in more, right? Right. Colin says he takes the stairs because uh, he works in a high rise downtown Seattle. He said he takes the stairs because he he heard that Bezos takes the stairs, and he hopes he'll run into him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope he's got this elevator pitch warmed up then, just in case. Yeah, I, I think he's, you know. I asked him. I said, "Are you going to think you're going to stay? You know, for a couple, three years? Because working three years at Amazon is like working ten years somewhere else." Yeah, yeah. right. And, and he said, "No, Dad, I could see staying twenty, thirty years. This is a great company. I love it." Yeah. So he's working really hard, but you know, he's doing great. He just got a promotion, and I'm really proud of him. But you know, I'm proud of all my kids. And twenty, thirty years in in that age bracket also is that's not people don't work in one job for people in you know in their twenties or thirties. They don't work in one job for 20 or 30 years anymore. I can attest. Right. Well, my youngest son observed of Colin. He said, Dad, he, he'll end up being the vice president or senior vice president. He said, he's, that, that's where he's going to stay. I said, well, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and then that's community. I mean, that's what you're talking about. That's the environment that's been fostered there, right? That he wants to stay there. He's not. Yeah. That, that's the kind of attitude where probably if somebody else offers him a $5,000 a year raise, he's not going to jump at that because... You know, it's not right. that that financial reward isn't worth the way that that organization makes him feel. They also he also has a huge bunch of stock, so it's one of the first things they do is they give you stock. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Golden handcuffs, right? There you go. So, Lucas, one last thing: isn't there a conference coming up in September that we need to know about? Absolutely. It is, is less than a year away now, so we just want to make sure everyone saves the date for Epic 2018. Uh, that's educating professionals in contracting. Next year's premier educational conference for the home services industry. It's taking place September 27th and 28th, 2018 at the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas. Um, this powerful new event starts with a welcome reception at the Marquee Nightclub the night before the evening of September 26th, complete with complimentary drinks and hors d'oeuvres. 
Then on Thursday, the 27th and Friday, the 28th, the conference will feature EGIA contractor universities, renowned faculty of industry experts offering business changing insights and breakout sessions, along with a product exhibition, networking opportunities and unforgettable keynote presentations from some really special celebrity keynotes uh, that we have lined up. So all contractors are welcome to attend, but premium EGIA members will receive two complimentary registrations, plus members will receive one complimentary registration. Um, so stay tuned to EGIA.org slash EPIC 2018 EPIC 2018 for further details in the very near future. We're going to be launching the site, launching a lot of details about the conference, announcing the keynotes and all that. Um, but for now, just please save the day for September 27th and 28th, 2018. This is the conference that is going to change your life, impact your business forever. Well, and I'll be presenting. I'll be doing some workshops, so I hope to see everybody there. Can't wait. Well, uh, that'll do it for today's episode. As always, visit egia.org slash podcast to find this episode, an archive of previous episodes, the online form to submit your questions for our mailbag segment, and links to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Google Play app, and a link to the latest EGI snapshot survey. For more information about EGI membership, visit www.egia.org slash join. I'm Mark Madison. Thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. I'll see you next time.